Last week we looked at the first seven verses of the book of Romans. Uh, and we saw there six things about the gospel, that is the good news, the message about the Lord Jesus Christ. First thing we saw was that the gospel is God's gospel. Came from him, belongs to him, it is his. It's not for us to make up or change or add to or take away from, it's God's gospel. The second thing we saw was that it was fulfillment of God's promises. That is, God made many promises in the Old Testament, and somehow or other they all ended up with Jesus. Who he is, what he did for us by dying on the cross and rising again. Every promise of God ended up in the gospel. The gospel is a fulfillment of God's promises. The third thing we saw is that the gospel is all about King Jesus. It's not about us, not about how we can be better off. It's about Jesus and what he's done for us. And the Jesus that the gospel is about is a Jesus that was foretold in the Old Testament. The Jesus whom God raised from the dead, who has been proved to be God's promised king. The Jesus who is Lord of all. The gospel is about him. Fourth thing we saw is that the gospel demands the obedience of faith from the nations. The gospel commands us to believe in Jesus. And so we obey the gospel by having faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus in turn leads to obedience to him. Because we trust him as our Lord. And his kingdom then extends beyond Israel to all the nations and all who will follow him. Fifthly, we saw that the gospel is ultimately for the sake of Jesus' name. It wasn't really for us. Oh, it is. We're saved by it. But more importantly, it's for Jesus. And ultimately, it's for the sake of Jesus' name. Because life, the universe, and everything exists for Jesus. And so does the gospel. Because he deserves it. And finally, we saw that the gospel shapes our identity. Even though the gospel is not primarily about us, it has great implications for us. We belong to Jesus. We are loved by God. We are his saints, set apart as holy in him, both individually and as a congregation together. Now, in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul is still thinking and speaking. He's got his heart and mind still on the gospel. And the key phrase for our passage is found in verse 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The rest of the passage either flows into it or flows out of it. Uh, verse 8 to 15, uh, we, we see about Paul writing, uh, he, he writes about how he wants to visit the Romans. Uh, and he, he prays that he can get to the Romans. Why? Because, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. See, the for there links verse 16 to the first, for the first for verses 8 to 15. Uh, all the things in verse 8 to 15 are because Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. The rest of the passage gives support for why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. So the second half of verse 16, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and to the Greek. And then, it's the, and then there's another four, it's the power of God for salvation for, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the whole thing is centered around this, this, path, this thing. You see that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Everything comes out of this. It's a bit like what we'll see on the diagram coming up. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. Starts with the fact that God's righteousness is revealed. 
in the gospel. So the gospel is God's path of salvation. So he's not ashamed of the gospel. And so he wants to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. Alright? That's the passage logically. But we're going to work through it this way. And so we start on the right hand side. That's where Paul starts in his letter. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And instead of being ashamed of the gospel, he wants or he prays to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. And instead of being ashamed of the gospel, we should be looking for opportunities, praying for opportunities to share it. That's the example of Paul. He was a minister of the gospel, set apart for the gospel, unashamed of the gospel, and he wanted to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. Now, it doesn't mean that they weren't believers yet. They were. Paul's thanksgiving for them in verse 8. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They are believers. Their faith is known throughout the world. In fact, notice Paul starts off by thanking God for their faith because he knows that God is behind their faith. And so in this letter, when he goes on and talks so much about faith and how, how faith makes us right with God, he starts by acknowledging the source of their faith and the source of their faith is God. There are some of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, who think that faith is not really a gift from God. It's something that humans do. But grace, they say, okay, grace is God's part, and then faith is the human part. But that can't be right, can it? Faith, it's true that faith is our response, it's a human part, but even that faith is a gift of God. God has given them the faith. This is true of the Roman Christians. It's true for us as well. It's God's kindness that leads us to faith. People from all over the world knew that in the Roman Empire, God had even called people to himself in the heart of it, in the centre of it, Rome. And even in the centre of the Roman Empire, Rome, there were people who were bowing the knee to Jesus. And Paul thanks God for that because he knows that in the end, God is the one who is responsible. So, these guys are already believers. They have faith in Christ. And yet Paul still wants to preach the gospel to them. Not only does he want to preach the gospel to them, he keeps on praying for the opportunities to. Verse 9 onwards. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, yours and mine. Paul's keep praying for opportunities to preach the gospel to them. If you want opportunities to preach the gospel, what do you do? Pray for them, don't you? That's where you start. That's what Paul did. In fact, why not, when you go to work each day, pray, Lord, please give me the opportunity, somehow, somewhere today, to say something about you. you try that? When you come to church on Sunday, before you come to church, pray for one opportunity to say something about Jesus to your brothers and sisters that will encourage them. Pray for opportunities, as Paul did. Paul prayed for opportunities to speak of the gospel because he knows that's how he serves God. He says in verse 9 that he serves God with his spirit in the gospel of his son. 
Now the word serve there is one of the words that's translated worship. Uh, it's primarily used in the Old Testament for worship. People did by making sacrifices or engaging in rituals. Uh, but now in the New Testament, Paul says that, that he worships God with his spirit in the gospel. His worship is spiritual. His service is spiritual. And he's doing it in the gospel, or another way of translating it, by the gospel. That is, he worships God through proclaiming the gospel. That's how Paul serves God. And that's his equivalent of Abraham in the Old Testament, you know, offering up a, a, a sacrifice to say thank you to God for his kindness. Paul worships by preaching the gospel. Have you ever thought of evangelism as worship? Next time you talk to someone about Jesus, or you invite them to church, or give them a tract, or show them an invitation, or something, Next time you call someone up for a guest night, or next time you're involved in organising a guest night, next time you do two ways to live and draw those boxes with, with someone at home or in the office, remember, that is part of your worship to God. You are serving Him. Do it as an act of worship. But it's not just evangelism. Remember, Paul's wanting to preach the gospel to the Roman Christians. He's not talking about that. He talks about, we just read about just now, about how he longs to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. That is, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, verse 13, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the other Gentiles. I am under obligation, he says, both the Jews and the barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. You see why Paul is so eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome? He said he wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith in the gospel. I hope that's all will happen with Jason and Tessie as they come to us. And we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith in the gospel. He wants to reap a harvest among them, like he has among the other Gentiles. He's got an obligation to them, all kinds of Gentiles, because he's the apostle of the Gentiles. And he wants all these good things for them, so what does he do? He, he will preach the gospel to them, because the gospel is not just for non-Christians. The gospel is relevant in every stage of the Christian life. If you want to impart something of spiritual value to your brothers and sisters in Christ to strengthen them, then speak of the gospel. If you want to be mutually encouraged in the faith with your brothers and sisters, speak of the gospel. If you want to see a harvest that glorifies God among the people of God, remind them of the gospel. That is an act of worship. That is serving God. Teach your Sunday school kids. Teach your cell group members. Keep on reminding each other of the gospel. And then work out the implications of the gospel in our lives. Everything that we do, everything that we're teaching, everything that we're sharing, all the problems that we face and we share with each other, what do we do? Tie it back. How does this tie back to the gospel? How does this tie back to who we are in Christ? And what he's done for us on the cross? Just keep on asking, how can I tie it all back? Tie it all back. Tie it all back.
gospel is not just for non-Christians. Gospel is for Christians as well. So Paul says, I want, every, I want the opportunity to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For, he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so I will seek the opportunities to preach it. Now we don't know why Paul talks about shame here. I don't know if he's being defensive, whether people are saying, oh, Paul hasn't come to Rome because he's ashamed of preaching such a, such a weak message in such a powerful place, that he's got to say, no, 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 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know if he's trying to maybe gently rebuke the Roman Christians who somehow or other might have felt shame about the gospel. Maybe he's just wanting to stress his point that the gospel is God's power. But whatever the case is, he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. What if you're ashamed of the gospel? Is shy to speak it to someone in case it might sound weak? Scared you might look foolish for believing it? Worried that you might appear arrogant or rude for proclaiming it? Or thinking, well, people already know it, can't be that relevant, must be something else. Should that stop you from preaching the gospel? Now, sometimes there are good reasons not to speak in particular situations. Sometimes our inhibitions are useful, so we don't put our foot in it. Right? Occasionally, we come across people who might need some sensitivity lessons. But for most of us, myself included, I think we have the opposite problem. I think we are too sensitive. And we miss lots and lots of opportunities because of that. And truth be known, sometimes we can be ashamed of the gospel. Now Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel either. And if we're not ashamed of the gospel, then we will pray for and find opportunities to share it. We'll do it in different ways, but we'll do it. For example, my dad goes around with a pocket full of tracks in his pocket. Right? He's a friendly man. He's, in his eight, he's nearly 80. He can get away with lots of things. Right? He chats with strangers. Blah, blah, blah. He's chatted with people, you know, just about things generally. Before he says goodbye, he says, oh, look, I've got something for you. Here, would you like that? And they say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You never know what it's going to do. You can learn a gospel outline like the two ways to live we talked about just now. So whatever you've got an sh- opportunity to share the gospel, you know what you're going to say. You could make a list of people that you're especially praying for and then meet up with another Christian or two once a fortnight, either live or on Skype, and pray for your friends and share how it's going. If you're on Facebook, or why not post a link to an evangelistic site every now and then? Look for different ones so people don't get bored. Don't do it all the time. Just every now and then. That's not just non-Christians who need to be reminded of the gospel. Christians as well. So put a link up that will, you know, encourage them. Bring them to church. If they're not coming. Bring them to a conference if they are. Remind each other of the gospel in cell groups when you talk to each other. When you share your problems with each other. When you talk. Whatever passage you're looking at, look and say, hey, hang on. How does this relate back to the gospel? Talk about your struggles to be godly. How does that, how does the gospel relate to those things? Talk to each other about issues at work. 
How does the gospel make a difference when you approach them? Keep on talking gospel, thinking gospel, acting gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. What is it about the gospel that makes it something that people might be ashamed of? Why why would the Roman Christians in Paul's day be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Well, they were a small minority. Everyone else had their gods. No mind how many gods, there's always room for one more. And then here comes the gospel with very exclusive claims. According to the gospel, they're all wrong. There's only one true God who made the heavens and the earth. And the way to be saved is through trusting in his son, the Lord Jesus. That's a big thing for a small minority to say, isn't it? You know the feeling? Do we tempted to be ashamed? What about the content of the gospel? The gospel is about God's king. Okay. God's king died. What? He was executed on a cross. Executed? On a cross? In Roman times, that was the most shameful, despised way to go. That was like the lowest of the low, completely beneath anyone who's standing. Not even, if you're a Roman citizen, you don't get that. You can't be. It's illegal to do that to you. It's just like, what kind of God do you worship who lets his king die on a cross? It's ridiculous. It's laughable. It's stupid. It's distasteful. Unlikely. It's unbelievable. Should you be tempted to be ashamed? What are we ashamed about in the gospel? I don't know. Maybe we want to be cool and the gospel isn't. Are you worried that we'll offend someone? Afraid we won't know what to say? We just keep on getting knockbacks over and over again. And it's just tough, isn't it? And you keep on getting knockbacks. Don't want to go on anymore. But here's a reason why we shouldn't be ashamed. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is God's rescuing power. Paul says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The word salvation comes from save, means rescue. And so God's gospel is the way, way he rescues people. Now, whenever you see the word save, you've got to ask, save from what? Right? If you were drowning in the sea and you were saved, that means you were rescued from the water. Saved from drowning. The lifeguard would be your saviour. The one who brought you to salvation. What does Paul mean by salvation in this passage? What does the gospel rescue us from? Well, the very next passage, from verse 18 onwards, we see God's wrath against sin. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men. The gospel saves us from God's wrath. In chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says that we will be saved by the death of Jesus from the wrath of God in the future. That is, when the judgment day comes, we will be saved when God pours out his just punishment on this world. 
In chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says our salvation is closer than when we first believed. So, Paul seems to be using salvation normally in Romans to, he's thinking about something that happens at the end. He's writing about the final judgment. The final punishment. Something that's so terrible and so great. It is as awful as God is holy. It's the catastrophe that the sinful world is rushing towards. That every other catastrophe and every other disaster is just a warning of that. And Paul says the gospel is God's power to save us from that. And instead, bring us to glory. A glory that is incomparably greater than the present sufferings that this world is in bondage to. Glory of the children of God, he says in Romans 8. And friends, that is nothing to be ashamed of. What a great rescue. Sometimes people are ashamed of this gospel. Too much pie in the sky when you die. We want steak on the plate while you wait. And so this gospel is not popular. So we're going to bring in massive crowds. We need another gospel to attract them. Yes, we'll mention salvation along the way, but people don't want to hear about the wrath to come and how to be saved from that. You've got to be positive. So the gospel is redefined. How do we redefine it? What's going to draw the crowds? Well, everybody loves prosperity. Huh? Who doesn't need more money? So we'll promise you prosperity. God wants you rich and other heresies. But the gospel is not the power of God for prosperity. It's the power of God for salvation. Lots and lots of people need healing. Everyone gets sick from some time or other. All of us know someone who is unwell at any point in time. And Jesus, he healed the sick when he walked on this earth. So let's make healing the heart of the gospel. Tell people that Jesus heals. Of course, we'll mention salvation along the way, but the main thing we'll promise is physical healing. And if they have faith, then they'll be healed. Never mind if it's not God's will. That's a negative confession. Never mind if people's faith is hurt when the people we promise will be healed don't get healed. Never mind if God is dishonored when we make promises in his name that he's never made and doesn't keep. Never mind if people miss out on hearing the true gospel of salvation because we're so busy preaching this other thing. And anyway, if we promise healing to a hundred people, only ten people get better, we'll still have ten more followers who will give testimony at our next rally. And the other ninety, they just didn't have enough faith. Friends, of course God can heal and does heal in answer to our prayer and according to his will. Healing is not the promise. The gospel is not the power of God for physical healing. At least not this side of the end. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that is much better news. So that is permanent. It's not the power of God for changing circumstances, you know. People want their needs met. You've got to give something to draw them. Let's tell them to believe... But instead of telling them to believe the gospel, we'll tell them to believe whatever they like to believe. Think of it, whatever you need. Whatever you need, think of that. Believe that God will give it to you. You heard that? Even if God doesn't promise it specifically. Believe for a breakthrough. 
Believe for a baby. Believe for a boyfriend. Believe in belief. The gospel is the power of God for those who believe, but not believing anything you want. Don't make up the gospel. It's believing the gospel. And what you get from believing the gospel is ultimately better than whatever breakthrough or boyfriend or whatever it is that you get. The gospel brings a glory that is greater than all we can ask or imagine. See, friends, the real gospel is is actually far, far better than all those fakes that people make up because they're ashamed of the real thing. Their gospels are just too small. They're wrong. They distract from the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus, who was promised by the prophets of old, who died on the cross for our sins, who rose again confirming his kingship beyond the shadow of doubt, and who by his death for us will save us from sin and death and hell and give us life in glory with him forever. That, my friends, is the great gospel of God. It's the power of God for salvation. And that is nothing to be ashamed of. Not everyone is saved by the gospel. Jesus doesn't rescue everyone in this world. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes, believes in this gospel. You see, you have to trust the gospel to benefit from it. Some people think there is one way of salvation for the Jews, a different way of salvation for Christians. But of course that's not true, is it? The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jews and then for the Greeks. Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, there's only one way to be saved. And that way is spelled out in the message of the gospel. It's for Jews first. We knew that from Acts, didn't we? The Jews who trusted in Jesus were the first to be in God's kingdom. But now it's for the Gentiles and non-Jews as well. And those who believe the gospel, be saved by the gospel, applies to, to anyone by faith. Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, whatever race you come from, whatever your former religion was, the way to be saved is by trusting the Lord Jesus that is revealed in this gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Have you put your trust in the Son of God, the King, who is revealed in that gospel? Because that is the way of escape from the judgment to come. That is the only way of salvation. That is God's way of saving those who believe. And if the gospel is God's power for salvation of those who believe, then it really is good news. If there's really an escape from the judgment to come, that is good news. If God has chosen to save us instead of leaving us to what we deserve, that is good news. And there is nothing to be ashamed of that good news. Now, if, if you discovered a cure for diabetes, a real cure, not a you know, grandmother story kind of cure, right? 
you wouldn't be shy about it, would you? You wouldn't say, well, most diabetics like having insulin every day. Think of all the jobs that would be lost if the diabetic industry collapsed. You wouldn't do that. You'd want all the diabetics to know so they could be cured. Of course, there'll be skeptics. Of course, there'll be vested interests that will oppose you. Maybe people from the drug companies or something like that. But you'd want people to know. It's good news. I think you'd be ashamed of. And the gospel's even better news. It's God's way of saving sinners from eternal death. Don't be ashamed of it. It's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And before we come to that last point, I just ask, are you still hearing me clearly or is the battery dying? Still hearing clearly? Okay. Last point. The use is why the gospel is God's path of salvation. And it is that the gospel is how God saves those who trust in him because God shows us his righteousness there. God shows us his righteousness. In the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. Look at verse 16 and 17 again. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile, for, because, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? Before the beginning of verse 17 shows that verse 17 is the reason for verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what does this righteousness of God mean? The word, the, the, the phrase, the righteousness of God is used in the book of Romans in two different ways as you read through the book of Romans. One way the phrase is used is to talk about God's character. That is, the righteousness of God is God's goodness and God's justice. This is just perfection. The other way is referring to a status. Like being righteous, the status of being right with God or being in good standing with God, is like getting the declaration from a court that you're not guilty of a crime. It says not guilty, then you're justify, you're declared righteous. Right? The court says this guy's okay. And so the righteousness of God in this way is the righteousness that comes from God. The status that is given by God as being righteous by us. Not by not something that you know we do by our own behavior. Um, not it's what the old theologians used to call alien righteousness. You know, kind of thing, right? But a righteousness that not, that's not ours, it's not intrinsic to us. It's a status that's given by God as a gift. A state of being right with God that is given freely by faith in Christ. Right? So the righteousness of God here, or the righteousness from God, is saying that God says, You are righteous, you are okay, even though you're a sinner. God says, You're not guilty because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And so you can experience the joy of being forgiven, confidence of being with the Lord forever. And we kept that right throughout the book of Romans as well. Both those ways of talking about the righteousness of God is in the book of Romans. God's character of righteousness and the righteousness that God gives to us. That is not ours, but is a status that God confers on us because of what 
with what Christ has done for us by faith in Christ. Which is what Paul, which one is Paul meaning here? Well, think about the context. What's the question Paul's answering? Paul's answering the question, why is the gospel God's power for salvation? If he meant the righteousness of God in the first way of saying it, then what he'd be saying is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation of all who believe because God's just perfection is shown there. Well, it is that God's character, God's justice and perfection is clearly shown in the gospel. But that's not a complete argument from the left to the right, is it? Right? It's not a complete argument from God's perfect justice shown on the cross to our salvation. You've got lots of dots to join, lots of links to make. You can do that, but it doesn't flow quite so straight. More likely then, he's talking about the second one, the other meaning. That is the righteousness that comes from God. And I think if you're looking at NIVs, that's how they've translated it. That is, what Paul calls the righteousness of God is the righteousness he gives to those who believe in Jesus. God gives that righteous standing with himself that we can't earn and deserve. God counts us as righteous, even though we're sinners, and we have faith in him. We trust his gospel work. And that works. Because why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Because the gospel tells us about the righteousness that comes from God. The righteousness that, right standing with God, which we receive by faith. And it is revealed, verse 17 again, from faith or for faith. Right? Which is just a phrase that emphasizes it's by faith, alone, from first to last. This whole thing is all about faith, not anything else. Not faith plus good works or anything. It's faith all the way. And Paul quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk from chapter 2, verse 4. Which says the righteous shall live by faith. Because in Habakkuk, the contrast is between the evil Babylonian who is proud and he puffed up and the righteous one who lives by faith. Because faith is the opposite of self-sufficient pride. Faith doesn't say, oh, I'm so good, I can do this. I can... Faith is, I'm a terrible sinner, I can't save myself. All I can do is depend on Jesus to save me. All I can do is trust that he has taken my sins and given me his righteousness. I can't earn it. I can't deserve it. All I can do is offer up an empty hand like a beggar and receive the righteousness of God as a gift. And the righteous shall live by faith. Does that make sense? So the gospel is God's power for salvation because through the gospel we find out that we can be righteous, that we can have a relationship, that we can be right with God, accepted by Him, not guilty by Him, not because of our own goodness, but as a gift from Him, because of Jesus and His work for us. Martin Luther was a German monk, but he struggled with issues of guilt. He knew he was a sinner, but I didn't know what this righteousness of God meant. See, if you, if you know something about God, and you believe about the holiness of God, and you know your sinfulness, and you don't know the righteousness of God, what a terrible, terrible position to be in. Because you know your sinfulness, you know God's holiness, and you don't know that God can accept you perfectly in Christ and give you the righteousness of Christ. And you end up thinking, you end up thinking that you've got to, you know, 
perform and you can't perform good enough and you end up in a terrible, terrible mess Martin Luther wrote this he said I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression the justice of God in our translation the righteousness of God because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust my situation was that although an impeccable monk I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and had no confidence that my merit would have saved him. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that justice of God is that righteousness by which through the grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate it became to me the inexpressibly sweet it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. And he goes on to say, If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart, in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain, as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. You see, Having the righteousness of God that comes by faith, that makes the world of difference in life. It makes every difference. We don't need to worry about whether God is going to accept us or not. God accepts us perfectly if we are found righteous in Christ. We don't need to think, we don't need to worry that the wrath of God is being revealed. It's God's smiling face that comes to us in Christ. If we are righteous in Christ. Having the righteousness of God means that we no longer need to worry about what happens on the day of judgment. We will not be condemned, but we will be with Christ in glory forever. Having the righteousness of God means that we do not need to wallow in guilt now. Because God sees us and treats us as righteous. God has condemned sinners anymore. Having the righteousness of God means that we can confess our sins. That we can admit that we are wrong when we are wrong. It means that we can afford to face the facts of how sinful we are and yet not despair. Because we are saved by the righteousness of Christ which is given to us. 
And so in the Gospel, God tells us about the righteousness He gives us if we trust Him. And that righteousness, that right standing with God, is the basis on which we will be saved on the last day through the Gospel. And that is nothing to be ashamed of. So, brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he lived that perfect life that we, that we could never live. Thank you that he died on the cross to take our place. Thank you that he rose from the dead and confirmed as Lord and King. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we can look forward to on the last day when you bring your wrath against the, against the sin of this whole world because of the righteousness that you have given us now in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that Jesus has taken our sins and given us his righteousness. Thank you that because of that we know where we stand on that last day safe with you thank you that because of that we can approach you now knowing that you love us and that you accept us perfectly in Jesus thank you that we can be freed from wallowing in guilt because we know that you have forgiven us that you have justified us made us righteous not through our goodness and through him who died for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gospel of your Son. And we pray, Lord, that we would never be turned aside from that. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be ashamed of that gospel, but to look and pray for opportunities to promote it. We pray that we'll be able to do that with our friends who don't yet know about Jesus and that we'll be able to keep on encouraging each other in that gospel and that all that we do for you wouldn't just be done because it needs to be done but because we love you because you have shown your love for us in Christ. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to keep on believing and keep on trusting in this gospel all the days of our lives. That you help us to keep this central in our lives, in our ministries, in all the things that we do. Father, we pray that Jesus would be honored and the great sacrifice that he's made and your great character of justice and love would be made famous. And we pray that in your mercy you will use us to do part of that. Help us we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Shall we stand and sing our next song, All I Once Held Dear? It's um, a song that reminds us about what's important in our lives, which is Jesus and knowing the gospel.